Welcome to Two Open Doors, the podcast that explores our power to open or close the doors of relationship with the important people in our lives. We hope you'll learn from and share your wisdom with our community. Thanks for joining us. Emotions are a big component of human relationships. They reflect our responses to another person, what we see in that person, how similar or dissimilar they seem to be relative to us, and how they affect our internal state. Emotions are related to the concept of feelings, which also play a big role in relationships. While the term feelings is often used synonymously with emotions in popular speech, they're different, and those differences are important to our understanding of relationships. Note that there's considerable divergence in how these terms are defined, even within the professional psychology and neurobiology literature. In this episode, we'll explore both emotions and feelings, and we'll see the role that those fill in the architecture of relationships. Our explorations will provide us with a foundation for thinking about emotional intelligence, or EQ, in a later episode. In trying to understand emotions, we must first introduce yet another important term, affect. Loosely, affect refers to what we are usually accustomed to thinking of as feelings, which are, in essence, the results of our pre-conscious response to experiences that we undergo. Those experiences include both external events that we witness or take part in, as well as the internal sensations, called interoception, that we have in response to our experiences. An affect, or feeling, has three distinct dimensions, or descriptive attributes. First, there's its valence, whether we assess the experience as good or bad, pleasurable or aversive. Valence is an internal judgment that we make about our experiences. Second is the degree of arousal that the experience induces in us. Arousal is a state of activation or deactivation. It's mediated by two different branches of our autonomic nervous system, or ANS, which controls our involuntarily bodily functions, such as glandular functions. The first branch of the ANS is called the sympathetic nervous system, or SNS. That branch activates involuntary functions. In contrast, the parasympathetic nervous system, or PNS, deactivates involuntary functions. These systems often but not always operate in opposition to each other, as gas pedal and brakes. Third is that affect has a motivational intensity, which is the strength of the urge to act caused by our experience. That action might be an urge to approach or interact with the source of an experience, or it might be an urge to avoid or withdraw from that source. Affect is sufficient to cause us to react to some experiences in a rapid and hardwired or predetermined way. Affect operates at a subconscious level. It doesn't rely on conscious decisions. In addition, though, our affective reaction to an experience feeds into a higher-level process of appraising the meaning of an experience. That higher-level process produces our emotions, as described next. Emotions are, in a sense, more complicated than affect or feelings. Whereas feelings are our pre-programmed reactions to external sensations and interoception, or internal sensations, more ingredients go into the making of emotions. In addition to the three affective facets of an experience, that is, valence, arousal, and motivational intensity, our emotional reactions are also based on our learned prior experiences, or history, and on our many learned mental models. 
Those models include concepts, beliefs, expectations, and conventions that we've learned about ourselves as well as about how people interact socially. Generating an emotional response to an experience is a much more thought-centered process than is entering an affective state. Emotions are conscious rather than preconscious experiences. Emotions entail making reasoned decisions and actions, which makes emotional processing slower than effective processing. Of course, the popular understanding of emotions is that they're not the product of a rational process. It's true that emotions don't rely on logic. However, they do depend on accessing one's past learning so that one can recognize and categorize experiences and how we've felt about such experiences in the past. Within the affect research community, there are two rather different and somewhat contradictory schools of thought about the nature of emotions. One perspective, exemplified by the research of psychologist Jak Panksepp, proposes that there are a small number of brain areas or subsystems, each one of which is dedicated to representing and implementing a particular primal emotion. Panksepp proposes seven such elemental emotions, which he labels as seeking, rage, fear, lust, care, panic, and play. To Panksepp and those with a similar perspective, that palette of basic emotions is fixed and neurally hardwired. More complex emotions are seen as composites of those basic emotions. An alternative perspective is proposed by Lisa Feldman Barrett, who believes that emotions are cognitively constructed rather than being inflexibly innate and hardwired. Her influential and more contemporary theory observes that different cultures associate different emotions or externally observable patterns of behavior with the affect that's induced by a particular category of experiences. What we feel, that is, what motivates a reaction from us, is different from how we respond, that is, our resulting behavior. Someone who encounters a frustrating situation might respond with anger, expressed through certain behaviors while another person might respond with submission and surrender, expressed through different behaviors. To Barrett, emotion results from our interpreting complex mixes of sensations, concepts, and social circumstances and conventions. Rather than our reacting to our experiences with emotions, it's proposed that our brains, including our emotive subsystems, are constantly guessing at the form and significance of what comes in through the senses. That's the so-called predictive coding model of cognition, which came to the fore in the late 1990s. In that model, learned prediction and interpretation replace hardwired reaction. I see the two preceding perspectives as complementary, rather than mutually contradictory. Simpler species of animals do seem to have a more rigid, stimulus-response-driven sort of interaction with the experiences that they encounter. It seems evolutionarily reasonable to expect that we've inherited some of those same fixed-response patterns and their underlying neurobiology. In addition, though, human cognition is marked by its flexibility, which relies on our learning capabilities. Thus, even if we feel, that is, experience a particular low-level affect, some of the same things that other species clearly feel, such as fear, we have much more latitude as to how we respond in our behavior. Thinking about concepts that are as basic as feelings and emotions can seem like a pointless exercise in mental gymnastics. Why should we care about understanding those concepts? In brief, if we acknowledge that our feelings and emotions have great impact on how we experience and behave in our relationships, the more we understand, the more consciously we can choose how to manage those relationships. Here are a couple of specific examples. 
First, by understanding that our feelings have three separate components, valence, arousal, and motivational intensity, we become more aware of whether we experience something as good and desirable versus bad and undesirable. We become more aware of how an experience is affecting us, whether it's revving us up or relaxing and subduing us. We become more capable of consciously choosing whether to let an experience provoke a strong reaction in us versus deciding to produce a more muted and perhaps more appropriate response. As a second example, there's freedom in being aware that our emotions are not an inflexible preordained response, but that we have conscious choice in how we react or behave in response to what we feel. Understanding that our emotions are strongly colored by our personal history and by what we've learned about ourselves and society at large helps us more readily see that others who experience the same thing that we do may legitimately respond in a very different way because of their different personal history and learning. Awareness of the malleability of our emotions also gives us hope that if we've learned inappropriate or self-limiting emotional responses in our past, we have the option of changing those responses in future. We can fix problematic emotions by reprogramming ourselves. That's a hopeful realization. Now that we've taken a bit of time to lay this foundation of understanding, we can think about where we'll go next in our exploration of emotion and relationship. In our next episode, we'll consider how emotions play into emotional intelligence, or EQ. That will be an interesting subject to focus on. To learn more about Two Open Doors and to engage with our community, I'd like to invite you to visit the Two Open Doors private Facebook group for posts and discussion, and the Two Open Doors meetup group for events. I also invite you to contact me directly by writing to me at claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, at twoopendoors.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I'll use your inputs to guide my work on future blog posts and podcast episodes. Thanks for visiting Two Open Doors.